The simplified reading this morning is 1 Kings 8, 6 to 11, then 22 to 30, then 41 to 43. The priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. From 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do, to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now... God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But God, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be opened towards this temple, night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And from 41. As for the foreigner, who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray towards this temple. Then hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people, Israel. And may, and may know that this house I have built bears your name.
This is the word of the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your word to us. It's a light for our path. It is food for our soul. May it be so for us this morning. Amen. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at various uh, places where the lecturing has taken us to uh, the life of King David and King Solomon, who were kings of Israel 3,000 years ago or so. And we'll get into the reading that Pete read for us in a minute. But what I wanted to do is begin by considering the bigger question, which is, why on earth are we looking at these stories? What is the point of digging up some episodes from long dead kings from a long time ago in a galaxy, in a, in a land far, far away? Um, how are these stories God's word to us? And what I think it is, is that our task here is to find our story in their story, to see how God speaks in the history of their moment, and so that we can be encouraged by how God moves towards us in this moment, where we are right now, with our feet on this soil. And so as we get into the story here, there's something that might help us grasp the moment that Solomon is in, in that time that Pete just read about, because it's something of a high point in, how, uh, in, in David, and, and David and Solomon's stories intertwined, you see, with the promises of God and, and the divine plan to remake a people after his own heart. And here, at this point in the reign of King Solomon, it's, on the face of it, it looks like those promises are coming true. In Solomon's kingdom, the promised land seems to be a fulfilled promise. It's at this point that the land of Israel is at its biggest, that the power and the influence and the prosperity and the reputation of Israel is at its zenith. And even you've even got people like the Queen of Sheba and the other nations that are looking towards Israel as a shining light a beacon of prosperity and goodness and all that it means to flourish as a nation. So I wonder how that sense of what it means to be flourishing connects with your story today and our story together. What do we know of the promises of God for our lives and for our lives together? What do we know of being called by God into being his people today? And what do we imagine life is like when those promises of God come true? Do we imagine something analogous to Solomon's prosperity? Do we imagine a life of purpose and achievement, a flourishing life? Is that what's on offer and these aren't sort of esoteric things to think about, particularly as we go into this what next season. Our sense of God's promise and purpose is what sets the priority for our life. It, sets, it shapes the values that we instill into our children. It helps form the way in which we choose how to spend our money or how we choose a career. And as a church... It shapes the sorts of decisions that we'll be facing soon when it comes to asking that question of what's next. What are we going to do in order to pursue 
God's promised life? What does flourishing look like for us as a church, for you and for me? Well, I want to take that and bring that story alongside this story that we've read about today and let it inform our hearts in this moment. And what we find as we get into the story is something typical is happening, something very typical of kings. The rich and powerful King Solomon has undertaken a building program. He has invested in bricks and mortar, and what he has built is something that his father David had desired to build, and that God promised would happen, he has built a temple. And so today's story is all about a temple. So what is a temple? In some ways, it's a very simple, practical concept. A temple is a building. And it's not just a building, it's a building with meaning. An architect will tell you that buildings, just like works of art, communicate something. They have meaning in them. And uh, I used to poo-poo this a little bit until I worked at a cathedral in Australia. And uh, the cathedral I worked in wasn't as grand as... Lincoln or something like that. Uh, but it was a pretty big church. And one day, as I was going around locking up, blowing out the candles and doing the things you meant to do, a lady stuck her head through the door. She'd walked past the doors for years and she'd summoned up the courage to see what was on the inside. So I invited her in to walk around with me as I finished doing the rounds. And as I did, I, went with, I, I explained to her, just because I like trivia, uh, some of the symbolism of the building how this, this building, just like a temple, was meant to symbolise the throne room of God. But the whole point wasn't to contain God, it was to show how we could come into that throne room. The whole building was cross-shaped, so we entered into the throne room of God via the cross. You have saints and angels in the windows around you, cheering you on, the, the brothers and sisters from times past. You have Jesus in the window at the very, sitting on his throne, welcoming you into his presence. And I was talking just almost in trivial terms as we walked up the nave and into the chancel and up towards the table at the back. And as I looked around and suddenly realised she was sobbing and weeping. The meaning of the, of the place had spoken to her, just like music speaks, just like words and poetry. It was, she was moved by the Holy Spirit. But a temple is more than that. As well. There's more in this story than just meaningful architecture. Take a look and you see that what happens here is not just symbol but reality. And it's there in the first part of the story. Pete read about how the priests brought up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. And the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, in practical terms, is just a large box with carrying poles that are too big for the room. In meaningful terms, this was a box linked with the deep history of God's people. In it were the symbols of their rescue from Egypt and the very emblems of God's promise to them, the tablets of the covenant. But it wasn't just about meaning. The Ark of the Covenant was also about reality. 
It had its roots at the time when Moses would meet with God in the tent of his presence. And his meeting with God was not some sort of liturgical prayer. It says literally that he met with him face to face and talked as one who speaks with a friend. And when Moses looked at the journey ahead and asked, what's next? He didn't pray, Lord, send your ark with us. He said, Lord, send your presence with us. In fact, if your presence doesn't go with us, Lord, don't send us. So all of that speaks to the heart of God. A God who doesn't just speak abstractions from the sky, but one who is involved and makes himself present, tangibly present among those he calls to be his people. And that's the heart of what's happening here. The priests bring the ark into this brand new holy place at the innermost part of the the building. They withdraw and as they step back, the glory of the Lord descends tangibly. The cloud filled the temple of the Lord, so much so that the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This story is about God showing up about his omnipresence becoming particularly present and tangible and real. And it's God's presence that defines this story. And as we see that, what we understand is that when we turn back to look at King Solomon, no longer is he the great and mighty, prosperous, flourishing king of the most powerful nation in the area. He's now a man. Standing before an awesome God and his glory fades as God's glory is manifest. And we can see that even Solomon realises this as he begins to speak. Lord God of Israel, he says, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. And as he looks to the temple that he has built, he says, can God really dwell on earth? The heavens even, the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple, he says. And that's true. God isn't contained by this building or his building. Just as God isn't contained in our story. God isn't contained by our church rules or by any system of human politics. God isn't contained by our ideas, our desires, our habits, or our self-made ways. Our God is an awesome God, as the song says. And he lives and moves and acts according to his glory and on his terms, outside of our control and certainly not at our beck and call. And that awesomeness is part of the story on Solomon's Day. But bring that into us as we think about what it means to flourish. If our flourishing is grounded in in him, if we look to Jesus to set the way of what it means to be prosperous on his terms, then it is on his terms, the terms of his kingdom. And we see that in the life of God's people over all the centuries. It was true here for Solomon. In the New Testament, we see that even in the life of Jesus himself, he flourishes because he is God with us and and the Spirit of God rests on him. 
and the apostles and the saints over the ages through to the godly people that you know and I know, we can see even in the witness of our own experience that to follow God is to trust that God is with us on his terms and not our own and that we can trust those terms. We can entrust ourselves into the untamable, uncontrollable hands of an awesome God. But back to Solomon. God is present. God is present there. God is present on his terms, but the grace is this. He has revealed himself so that we can know what those terms are. We know what it's like. And Solomon declares that truth. So as he reveals, speaks of God, Solomon declares things like this. He speaks of a God who keeps his covenant of love with his servants. He says, Lord, I know who you are. You are the promise-keeping God. He speaks of a God who keeps his promise. He doesn't try to control God like some pagan sorcerer. He simply holds on to the truth of God's character. Let your word that you promised to your servant David, my father, come true, he says. Which is a simply way of saying, I trust what you have said, Lord. Your will be done. And so Solomon dedicates this temple by declaring the truth of God's character and God's majesty. Here is a place that can never contain God, but nevertheless, here is a place of God's promise and presence. And so it's a place where faith can be expressed. Turn to this place, therefore, he says, to cry out to God. Here is a place where the presence of God will hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying. Turn to this place to pray. Here is a place where those who need to cry for mercy can cry for mercy. Here is a place from which God will declare forgiveness and say, I have heard you. And he goes on, turn to this place when you need protection. Turn to this place when you are afraid. Turn to this place where you need to seek the Lord your God and know he is with you. And even at the end he says this, um, he knows it's not some in-house exclusive thing. At the end of what we read today we see that those who, even those who do not belong to the people of Israel, who come from a distant land, can turn to this place. And find God's presence where their prayers can be heard and have their very selves recreated according to God's purpose. God is awesome and huge in Solomon's story and he is present. So the story comes to us and this is where it confronts us. The story comes and the threads through the Bible are quite clear. The truth of the temple is about the presence of God, but it only foreshadows in bricks and mortar what becomes real in Jesus. Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the very presence of God. And wherever Jesus went when he walked this earth, people would turn their face to him, would cry out, Lord, hear our prayer, Lord, forgive, Lord, have mercy. And Jesus would hear them, God would hear them and he would help them flourish on his terms. 
And of course, Jesus, after he ascends into heaven, sends his spirit so that he can say to us, Lo, I am with you always, with you always. And then Paul says that by the power of that same spirit, he forms us into a temple. A temple, a place, a people where God is present. So that people can encounter us and say, Here, God is truly among you. O Lord, hear my cry. O Lord, hear my prayer. O Lord, have mercy. Solomon is right. Who can contain the majesty of God? Yet God in his grace has made it his plan that he will manifest his presence across the globe among scattered people like us. That is how we are to be the people of God, a place of his presence. So what do we do with that? What I'm realising and I echoed this in the notices, is that here now in this time there is a sense in which there is a starting again. I think it's true more generally across the world. I know many people are reconsidering where their lives are at and who they are and what's going on. There's a restart. It's certainly true in this church. In many ways, we're approaching the next season as if we were a church plant going, what can we do? The the world lies open before us. And so just as Solomon took this new building and dedicated it by declaring and looking to the presence of God, I wonder if this confrontation, the good confrontation of this story with ours, is that here is a time of rededication. How do we rededicate our lives and rededicate our church? And I think when it comes to the church, the pathway ahead for us is, like I said, open for many things. And we could pursue a vision of what we think a flourishing church looks like. We could imagine this place filled with programs and and plans and, and, and we could delve into the strength of our own capacity, limited as it is. But my heart's cry is that we would seek the presence of God, and have that be our dedication and our foundation. I remember early on in my time here when there was, we were, I was down in Cafe Zero down below and, we, and, and some young ladies became, came to have, the, have a meal with us and it was clear, I won't go into their story, but it was clear that they were traffic people who had, who had been brought to the area by the Home Office and it was good that we were able to feed them and care for them. I delighted in that. We ran a good program. But my heart's desire is that they would be able not just to have food, but to encounter the presence of God. That their lives would be transformed. That their testimony would be one of, we found wholeness and healing and life and love, and we found our home amongst the promises of God. And when it comes to being God's people, that what we desire stems from being in his presence and knowing his heart. So that when we think about what it means to be church, we aren't thinking about what feels good on a Sunday, although I'm happy to feel good on a Sunday, or what things we can do that, that strokes our sense of purpose, but we begin with that sense of surrendering that purpose and say, Lord, hear our cry. 
Move us. Let us see you. Because when we find him, that we are remade and shaped on his terms to do something that doesn't just run another program, but brings the kingdom and brings his presence. It's why one of our focuses is going to be worship. We find ourselves in worship as we seek his presence and his face. I've gone completely off notes. So I want to pause there. Now is a time of rededication. Stories like this confront me, I know. One of the prayers that Jill and I pray often uh, is a prayer that goes, may my imagination in God be restoried. And what, I wanted, what that means is I thirst for an intimacy with God. I thirst to, have, to know him, some akin to how I knew him at the beginning, but deeper and more maturely. And I want us to be not frantically running around, running after budgets and plans, but beginning all that we do by saying, Lord, hear our prayer. Because unless you are with us, Lord, don't send us up. I'm going to leave it there and invite you into a place of rededication. We're going to sing a song as we come around the Lord's table. Jill's going to lead us in a time of confession and yielding. And so use this song as you can to offer yourself and say, Lord, be present in my life. I want to see you and know you and have a, be a community that's shaped around who you are. Let me pray and let us sing. Lord, we are here as your children. We are here in the midst of this tumultuous year. We are here surrounded by disturbances in the world and by the insecurities of our own lives. So Lord, hear our prayer as we turn to you. Once again, we offer ourselves to you, Lord. Receive our worship. Help us to bless you. May our lives be a blessing to you. And therefore, bless the world. Amen.